I'm excited and a little bit overwhelmed to be with you this morning, to be able to share something that's been on my heart for some time. I want to thank everybody. Mickey and I have really, really appreciated your support, your prayers, your cards, your visit, meals, everything that, that you've done over the past year that's made our life a little bit easier. Uh, I have no idea why I'm still here. <laughs> we wonder about that, but the Lord knows what he's doing, and, and we trust him in that. But thank you so much. The hugs of the little ones and the, the arm around the shoulder and the encouraging words, those, those all mean so much. And uh, when we first started singing this morning, uh, Behold Our God, I thought, oh boy, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> about dead. So, what we're going to talk about this morning is heaven, and not just because I'm closer to heaven, probably, <coughs> than I've ever been, uh, but when we think about it, we are all one heartbeat, one breath away from eternity, and where we spend eternity is important. The Lord has made a way for us to spend eternity with him. And we have to take advantage of that opportunity through Christ, through the blood that was shed on the cross for us, for our sin, not our sins so much, but the basic sin of putting ourselves before God. That's what all sins flow from. We would be as God and run our lives and do our thing. So, we were made for two things, one person in one place. That person is Jesus Christ, our creator. And the place that we were made for, for eternity, we call heaven. And we want to talk about heaven this morning because Christians don't really discuss heaven. You know, we know we want to go to heaven because we don't want to go to the other place. I heard a cute story about a Sunday school teacher. And the Sunday school teacher had taught this class of grade school kids uh, for a couple of years and, and got to know them pretty well and had shared the gospel with them. They did their crafts and everything else. So one Sunday morning, the Sunday school teacher asked, you know, if I do all kinds of good works, if I become a missionary, will I get to heaven? And her whole class said, no. So she thought, this is encouraging. Maybe they're on the right track. Maybe they've actually heard what I was saying. Well, if I give all my money to the poor and don't spend any money on myself, will I get to heaven? And the kids said, no. She said, this is great. I've been a, a good teacher. I've been a great Sunday school teacher. Said, if I listen to my parents and do everything they say and I'm really obedient and I do my schoolwork on time, will I get to heaven? And the kids said, no, you have to die first. <laughs> Perspective of children. The reality is 
we are all going to die. One way or the other. If Christ returns and takes us off the earth without having to go by way of the grave, that would be great. But for the vast majority of humanity, the decision to follow Christ is what follows where we end up and how we end up. So how often do we think about heaven? Do we think about it when somebody dies and we go to a funeral? I wonder where this person is right now. We think about that. You know, it kind of forces us into an uncomfortable mindset. People die. I'm going to die. Raises the question. When we talk about heaven, we think it's a good thing. You know, we use heaven to describe a lot of things. The taste of pizza last night was heavenly. Or maybe somewhat less than heavenly, depending on where you got your pizza. Or that ice cream that we had was heavenly. We use heaven to describe falling in love. Of course, some people turn it into the other place. <laughs> we use it, we think when we're really sick, gee, I'm not doing so well. I'm laying here in a hospital bed, and next time I close my eyes, I may wake up facing my Lord. So I think about heaven, and I hope for heaven. But it's kind of an unfounded, vague, general idea of what heaven is, and I want to talk about it this morning. If we look at Scripture, we will see, if I can find it here, in the New Testament alone, there are 387 verses about heaven. So I'm only going to read 300 of them this morning. <laughs> 387 verses in heaven. There's only 150 to 60, or 150 to 160 on hell, and only 30 to 40 on marriage. So taking heaven as a topic is a huge undertaking. What I want to do this morning is whet your appetite to study more. There is a whole lot of information out there that we haven't considered, and there's a whole lot of things that we have inherited in our culture about ideas that just aren't true <coughs> about heaven. So, our upbringing has given us a lot of misconceptions. So a Christian worldview is one that takes in a bigger perspective than just what we're doing from day to day and week to week, isn't it? Because the vast majority of our existence is going to be outside of this present life. It's going to be in a life, hopefully, with Christ in this place called heaven. So... What is heaven? Is this a cloud that we sit on? We get wings like an angel, and we're handed a harp, and we sing for all eternity on that cloud. How many pictures have we seen, <laughs> at least mentally, of this? How many cartoons do funny people that can draw draw about heaven, about angels sitting around talking to each other? Say, well, I can't get any reception on my cell phone up here. 
What is it that we're hoping for when we hope to go to heaven? Tim Keller, and I'm going to quote a number of people today because there's a lot of interesting thoughts on it. Tim Keller said that what we do today is shaped by what we believe about tomorrow. So the first scripture, with that in mind, I want to look at is Colossians 1, verse 3. I only have 10 scriptures. I'm not going to give you all 367 or 87, okay? You can do that on your own. I've got 10 scriptures today. And there is a cause and effect as to what we think about the future and how we act today. Okay? Colossians 1, verse 3 through 5 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ, mark that in your mind, faith in Christ, Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, mark that one, faith in Christ, love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a result of the hope that they have that they love the saints and they have faith in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if this life only we have hope of Christ or hope of heaven, we are of all people to be most pitied. Our life, our existence goes further, much, much further and much, much deeper than just this life here. So because of the hope laid up in heaven, so if we don't have love for the saints and our faith is weak in Christ, maybe our hope is not on the right thing. I want to talk about Christian hope a little bit. Christian hope is different than what we use in the world when we talk about hope. When we say in the world, I hope something happens, we kind of hedge our bets. We flip a coin mentally. Well, this might or might not happen. I hope we have nice weather tomorrow because <coughs> I want to go to the ball game. Well, we might have nice weather, <clears throat> but it also might rain and snow. This time of the year, you never know what it's going to do. This afternoon would be a great day to go out and look at the leaves. A week from now, we may be shoveling snow. Who knows? I hope that doesn't happen until later, but my hope might be disappointed, right? When we're a kid, we say, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. I'm not going to ask how many horse people here were horse people when you were kids wanted a pony. Most often, that hope didn't come to pass. <laughs> you got a shirt or socks or a chemistry set, or whatever your parents could get you. I hope this hope happens. And when we say hope in the world, we hedge our bets. We think, yeah, this might happen, this might not. It would be a good thing if it did. Christian hope is different. The Bible tells us that Christian hope is assurance of things. That means that we know it's going to happen. Heaven is an assurance. It's not I hope to go to heaven. 
If I am in Christ, if I belong to him, I know I will be with him in heaven. He's the best friend I have in the world. And I'm going to be sitting with him face to face. To face. I'm going to be feasting with him and the rest of the redeemed before the throne of God. I'm going to get to know Abraham, Jacob, Moses. I'm going to get to talk to Charles Spurgeon. This is not a hope in the world. This is a sure thing. Have we thought about these things? Do you have a list of the people you want to talk to that have gone before us? I do. Do you want to look up your great-great-grandfather that was a preacher and hear about his life on earth? These are realities. We don't cease being what we are. We don't become an ethereal spirit floating around forever on a cloud. And I'll substantiate that as we go forward. The hope is a living hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ raised from the dead, we are found in him. That's our hope. That's going to happen to us. This body that hurts, this body that's sick, this one that I have that has one transplanted organ and hoping for maybe another one, <laughs> is going to be changed. Do you ever want to run a marathon? I don't really want to run a marathon, but I'd like to be able to. <laughs> you know? I'd like to have the ability. When we say we want a bucket list, I'm going to do these things before I die because once I die, I don't have a chance. My bucket list begins when I cross over. I've got a bucket list for the other side. You know, the stuff that I can't do today, I'm going to be able to do tomorrow. I can't run a marathon today. I can barely walk a block. But my body is going to change, and it's going to be different. It's going to be redeemed. It'll be like Christ's immortal body. I don't know what all that means, what that looks like. But it's going to be a physical body. You are going to have a physical body. And it's going to be you. You won't be unrecognizable. I will know Joe Long as Joe Long. He's going to be glorious looking. <laughs> Not that you aren't now, Joe. <laughs> but he's going to be glorious looking. He's going to have a redeemed body. He's going to have redeemed mind. He's going to have abilities that he never had before here on earth. We all are. The capacity to enjoy a physical existence on a redeemed earth. 
Heaven is not just a spiritual realm. It's eventually going to be a physical realm. Heaven is a place. The living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our salvation is yet to be totally revealed. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials. You think? (laughs) So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, this sounded like last week, this sound like John 16 when jo- Nick was talking about a little while you're not going to see me? How about that? Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christian hope is the assurance of what is going to happen. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. (coughs) Heaven is a physical place. It's not a disembodied, spiritual dream world. That's the temporary heaven that's at Christ's right hand right now. It's temporary. Because heaven eventually is going to be brought to this earth. And this earth is going to become the new earth. And the new heaven is going to be indistinguishable from earth. What we have here now is a reflection of heaven. It's a pale imitation. As glorious as those colors out there are today, they're nothing to compare to what they're going to be. Romans 8 says the whole world travails. That means it it moans and groans because it's waiting for its redemption that comes when ours does. So heaven isn't far away. It's not clear out by Alpha Centauri in the universe. It's another realm that's very, very close to us right here. If you want to call it another dimension, that's fine. Earth is on a lower dimension than what heaven is now. That's not always going to be the case. So heaven is a physical place, not a disembodied dream world. And it's a shame that some pastors don't understand what heaven is. And we don't hear, I'm not talking about Nick here. He talks about heaven all the time. But a lot of times in in the Christian world today, we don't hear pastors talk about heaven. In fact, one of them said, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. You believe that? I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the thought of endless tedium. 
to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp, it's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. Can you imagine a pastor having that Christian, not Christian, worldview? I have a story about myself, about when I was a teenager. My wife has heard this story, I think. Uh, I was very, very interested as a teenager in one girl, lived in another town. Her name was Beth. And I really, really wanted to date her and eventually marry her. And there was one drawback. She wasn't a Christian. So I set it upon myself to help Beth become a Christian so that I could be with her. How many of you know how well that worked out? <laughs> In fact, when we do that as Christians, we pick out an unbeliever and decide, that's the one I want, so Lord save them so I can have them. Very seldom works out that way. I won't say never, but it didn't work out in this case. And best viewpoint was that heaven's boring. I don't want to sit around on a cloud and play a harp. John 17, verses 24 through 25, Jesus is praying. He's praying about you and I. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And our problem is not that the Bible doesn't tell us much about heaven. The problem is that we have many misconceptions about it. People that don't think rightly about heaven say, well, oh, we can't understand heaven because the Bible says... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a quote from 1 Corinthians 2. But the very next verse, Paul qualifies that, these things has God revealed to us through the Spirit. The things that weren't known before, he has now revealed. And like I said, there are 387 verses about heaven. Christ preached entire sermons about heaven. He gave parable after parable after parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then fill in the blanks. <coughs> Why did he do that? <clears throat> it's because parables about the earth reflect on heaven. <clears throat> because earth is a reflection of heaven. And we can understand it. Heaven is not going to be an alien place to us. It's going to feel like home because it's an extension of what we've desired all our lives. We desire to know peace, health, joy, security, inclusiveness, being part of, being a family. The things that maybe we don't feel quite in this world, 
the things we long for, God gave us that desire. And eventually he fulfills that desire. <clears throat> Common mistakes. When we die, we turn into angels with wings and halos. Really? That's a mistake. Angels are an entire different order of created spiritual being. We don't turn into angels. You don't change what we are. Joe is still going to be Joe Long. Ross is going to be Ross Skaggs. The people that have died before me are going to recognize me, and when I get there, I'm going to recognize them. Deuteronomy, the Lord told Moses, I want you to go up this mountain, I want you to look at the land that I'm giving you, and you're going to die there. I want you to die. And you will be gathered to your people. Well, gathered to his people where? On the other side. There's a number of times through the scripture where it says, we're gathered to our people when we die. This is a blessing. This is a wonderful thing. Most of you don't know a daughter that I had that died. Mickey and I had a daughter that died in 2008, the year before I had the transplant. <clears throat> I get to see Susie again. I will recognize her and she will recognize me. We'll be gathered to our people. Another mistaken belief is that we'll be disembodied spirits living in a spiritual house. Spend eternity in the clouds. We'll live forever without a body. Not true. Temporarily, we will be in a spiritual place with Jesus. We'll see him face to face. We'll be with our people. Eventually, we're going to return to this earth in a redeemed body and live here forever. This will be heaven. Right out here, this street. It's going to be heaven. What's the definition of heaven? It's where Christ is. You know, all the wonderful things, all the great apple pies in the, in the world in heaven and feasting would be nothing if Jesus wasn't there. He's the best friend we have and we're going to see him and rejoice with him and get to hear stories from him and, and just sit at his feet like Martha, or not Martha, Mary. Another mistake, we won't remember our earthly lives, it won't be us anymore. That's not true. Scripture says that we're laying up treasures in what we're doing now. We're building things that we will enjoy in heaven. Why? Because we can look back on what happened here and we see the reason for it. I think a lot of our reward is going to be you were a blessing here in this way and you had no idea. We didn't let you know because your head would get too big. But you were a blessing. Oh Lord, that's wonderful. That's okay, I didn't need to know it then. I was an idiot. I am so glad he takes our idiocy into consideration when he calls us. He knows and loves us anyway. 
and is bringing us up. Another mistake we make today, we think, well, only heaven matters, so I'm going to ignore the earth and, and everything that's going on here, and, and earthly pursuits don't matter anymore. I don't need a job. I can just sit back and wait. I'll either die or the Lord will come back, and things will be hunky-dory. God has not given up on this world. He created the world to be inhabited, to be ruled and governed and have dominion over by people and physical bodies. That's going to be our job for eternity. Another mistake, when Jesus returns, it's just a quick visit to pick us up in the rapture and take us to heaven and stay there forever. It's not like God is saying, you messed up the earth, so I guess I'll let you come live with me now. We'll take you out of that mess. No. There is no plan B. His plan all along has been to redeem the earth and redeem us to live in it and be part of it. Another mistake, we can learn about heaven from people's claims about going there. <clears throat> There's a lot of books and people out there that are saying, I was to heaven and this is what I saw. Hebrews 9.7 says, it's appointed for man to die once. And since these stories are told by people who die twice, it seems likely they didn't really die the first time. They may have had a vision of some kind, they really didn't die. <clears throat> you can think about that. Okay. Heaven will be boring. I don't think so. God is going to be endlessly interesting in Christ Jesus and all of his creation. When Revelation talks about the city, Revelation 21, verses 15 and 16. The angel measured the new Jerusalem that descended from heaven into the earth. And if you translate the number of leagues that he measured, it was 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. Anybody know what near-Earth orbit is? How high is near-Earth orbit? How much? 30,000 feet? It's about 96 miles. It's about 96 miles, so I don't know how that translates. That's near-Earth orbit. You know, communication satellites are out there anywhere from near Earth orbit on out to 2,800 miles. Halfway to where the communication satellites are is where this top of this city is going to be. It's going to be a cube. If you think about the distance between Salt Lake City and Chicago, it's going to be that much wide. And from Canada to Mexico, it'll be that, that tall and 1,400 miles up. And no, nothing in the Bible says it's going to be in the United States, but the New Jerusalem is going to be the, the capital city of the earth. It's going to be a cube, 1,400-mile cube. 
You imagine how big that is? And kings and princes and peoples and cultures go in and out of the city all the time. What does a city have when you think about it? As people, as buildings, as government, as art, as music, it has culture, it has a lot of books. Still sound boring? Looking forward, you know, you, people say don't be so heavenly mindly, minded, you'll be of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that quote? We need to be more heavenly minded. We're not heavenly minded enough. Our perspective is too short. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, looking forward to the eternal world is not as some suppose a form of escapism or wishful thinking, it is one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Aim for heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, and you get neither. That's profound. That's profound. Elizabeth Elliot says, think of the most beautiful place you know on earth. Think of the most wonderful day you've ever had. Think of the person who loves you more than anyone else loves you. Then multiply that by a million, and maybe that's the tiniest hint of what heaven will be like. Our models of faith in Hebrews 11 talks about all the, the ones that have gone before and it says this in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear, they're seeking a homeland. What does homecoming mean? It's a place where we're secure. This time of the year, the young people go to homecoming dances and games and, and celebrations. Are they all the best football players in the world? No. But there's a community and a, and a, a celebration of being together in this that, you know, our team is good. We like each other. We're, we're doing this together. That's what homecoming means in a small, small way. We think of homecoming in a heavenly sense, it's the best of all our hopes rolled together, becoming reality. We talk about that, that pony at Christmas time. If God tells you you're going to get a pony, you best buy a shovel because you're going to be cleaning up after it. It's a done deal. Now, if you're like me, that's not an attractive thing at all, but we got the horses anyway. That's my wife's thing. 
They were banging on the door. Neighbors were banging on the door yesterday morning. Hey, do you know your horses are out? Again, on the road, visiting the neighbors. C.S. Lewis again says, The Lord finds our desires. This is in his book, The Weight of Glory, by the way. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The restlessness you feel is for home. The restlessness and the desires that you feel, the good desires, are all going to be fulfilled in Christ. What's wrong with the world today? Sin brought it down. Not sins, the concept of sin, of man as God, of the man taking God's place. And all of creation fell because of it. God is going to redeem that. There is no plan B. All that was broken is going to be fixed. All that's polluted is going to be cleaned up. That doesn't mean we leave the world in the mess it is. You know, you can make fun of the tree huggers all you want. And the ecologists and the people that want a better earth, their desire is in the right place. The world cries out for justice that doesn't know how to bring it. They don't use the standard that is God's standard to bring justice. But they know they want something different than what they have. It's going to be fixed. And you're going to be part of the solution. through Christ, to his glory. Randy Alcorn writes this about desire, and I gave you a couple of books there. Uh, not many people read 400-page books. You know, if you, you say, I read a 400-page book, that's really something. You know, people are busy. But if you're going to read a 400-page book, I recommend the one by Randy Alcorn on heaven. He's got a number of smaller books that are summaries, but the whole book itself doesn't read like a 400-page. I mean, it takes no time at all to get through it. And it opened my eyes to a number of things that I had wrong in my thinking. And he tells you what is Scripture, what is possible, and what is his speculation. It's a great book. There's a couple of others there, too, on, on uh, Christian viewpoint or Christian godly worldview. Randy Alcorn writes in this about desire. We're made for a person and a place. Jesus is the person, heaven is the place. They are what we desire. We'll never be satisfied with less. No other person, no other place will fulfill us. At best, lesser objects of desire can give us hints and foretastes and draw us closer to who and what we ultimately desire. At worst, they can become idols 
God substitutes and heaven substitutes. All people seek the same things. They don't know it, but it's God in heaven. The world, flesh, and the devil lead us down dead-end streets promising fulfillment. Satan's central strategy is to lie to us about what we really want and how to get it. People spend their lives chasing mirages leading to disillusionment, addiction, shame, and destruction. What do I do with my water? If we're honest, at times we've thought, I know the Lord's coming back. I want him to come back. But I want him to come later. Because I've got some things I want to do first. I want to graduate from school. I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to see children before he comes back. No, I want to see my grandchildren. Well, I'd really like to get to know my great-grandchildren. If I just get this one job I want, if I save up just enough money to buy that house that we've been eyeing and want, then, then he can come back. If we're honest, we've thought that way. Anytime we put these things ahead, and those are not bad things. Those are wonderful things. Marriage, a good job, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, a new home. Those are all good things. But when we put those in the place of our ultimate desire for heaven, we've got the order wrong. We've got the order wrong. The fall twisted our desires. The world out there is like a polluted pool. It's still water, but it's got some floaties in it that are just kind of nasty. I can remember being on a mission trip to Honduras, and you had to time your swimming because they had no septic system there. We were on an island. And the septic system was an outhouse over the sea. You look down through the hole, and there's the water. Well, that's also the sea that you went places and boats on. And if you were brave, you would swim in. Now, certain times of the day, the tide was in, and everything was concentrated in the bay, you didn't want to go swimming then because there were floaters <laughs> and long strings and ribbons of toilet paper in the water. Well, later on, the water would come in and the tide would go out and fresh seawater would come in. And then it was relatively safe to go out and swim and see the reef and, and different things like that. Well, the world is kind of like that. It's got a lot of floaters in it. <clears throat> It's not that the water itself is bad, it's just polluted. We don't want to add to the pollution. In fact, there are some things we can do that alleviate the pollution in our walk, 
and we should try to do that. There's nothing wrong with getting involved in politics. I used to hate the idea of running for office, but who else is better to be in a public office than a Christian? It's not bad to be a boss, a supervisor, or an owner of a business if you can run it by Christian principles and be an example to the right way of doing things, the ethical way of doing things because of your belief and your trust in the Lord. It's not wrong to own a big farm, Josh, you know, 10,000 acres. You produce food in an ethical way for consumption, for people to live. We can live in this world and still be a citizen of heaven. Our problem comes when we're a sojourner and we say, I'm going to make this world right so I can live in it and be here. And that's ultimately only going to happen in the resurrection. The fall twisted our desire, but eternity is still in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. We can't help but think about eternal things because it's part of us. It's part of us. We don't need less desire. We need more. We need more desire pointed in the right direction. Romans 8, very familiar, uh, says that creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's you and me. Our freedom and our glory, when we see Christ as glory, is going to change everything around us. We eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. This is the gospel. This is gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. And we with patience wait for it. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We've never known a world without sin and suffering and death, yet we yearn for it. God tells us that the world and all creation long for one day be ours to live in forever. I'm going to skip to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is verse 1 through 5. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <clears throat> and I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This world is going to be made new. You, your physical bodies, are going to be made new. Whether it's coming up from the grave, or if Christ returns in the next 10 minutes, these bodies will be changed. We'll have the capacity to live and enjoy forever what God has created for us to enjoy and be part of. 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not returning to the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? The Garden of Eden was an agrarian society. God is not doing away with human culture. He's sanctifying it. In fact, he's going to bring all the cultures together, not as one, but as um, a, a, a great rainbow, a great, what's the word that they use for uh, <clears throat> drawing a total blank? Hmm? Diversity. They have diversity training in <clears throat> colleges today, have had for some time. The new heaven, the new earth is going to be a blend or a mix of cultures, people, nations, tongues, abilities, worship styles. It's not going to be one big cross point church. We get to know a lot of different people than what we've been used to. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Our role in growing and developing dominion under Christ's rulership will never end. And it will involve the entirety of God's created universe. Who's to say that we just have the earth to play with? There's an awfully big universe out there. That's all part of creation that's going to be raised to another level. And we'll be able to enjoy it. Randy Alcorn again says, according to the Bible, God's people will reign over a resurrected universe centered on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Jerusalem as its capital city, 1,400 miles cube. Carefully read Revelation 21, 22 and many other passages, you'll discover that we eat, drink, work, fellowship, learn, travel, and experience many of the things we do now. It's going to be familiar because it's going to be home. God chose not only to make physical humans to live on a physical earth, but he chose to become a man on that same earth, Jesus Christ. He did this to redeem mankind in the earth and to enjoy forever the company of human beings in a world made for them, a world called the new earth. It's called the new earth. 
That world is what we're looking forward to. I ran a little bit over. But we need to preach heaven. We need to think about heaven. Our desires need to be focused on heaven. Not just the, the spiritual realm, but the eventual heaven that's going to fill all of creation. And we're going to be part of that in him. Tim Keller said, everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. I love that. Everything sad is going to come untrue. The next slide up here, I don't know if... I'll leave that up there if you want to read it. <clears throat> I like this. I found this and I've, I've kept hold of it for some time. One minute after a believer dies, angels usher your soul to heaven, where Christ is right now. You immediately enter God's presence. You are conscious, in command of your thinking, feeling, speech, and memories. These are all supported by scripture. You participate in magnificent worship with angels and believers before the throne of God in Christ. And you are aware to some degree of activities and events on the earth. Hebrews says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That should make you think. Everything you see and do is being observed. Great cloud of witnesses. I'm going to wrap up with one more quote. I know I have a lot of quotes, but these were good. This Jonathan Edwards... <clears throat> From 1703 to 1758, he was 19 years old. He's an American revivalist and preacher and is one of the most important theological philosophers that's documented. Very, very prolific writer. I don't know, Nick and I were kidding around thinking about how many goose quills he went through to, to write all the things that he did, the myriad of books and everything. But when he's 19 years old, he made a number of resolutions 19. And this is the one that I, I really love. He said, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, weight, vigor, and vehemence, yes, violence, I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Praise the Lord.